0: Lord, we ask that you would bless our time as we get into your word, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds, that you would challenge us, that we would um, grow closer to you, that we would uh, see you for for who you are, that this uh, story, this uh, actual historical account of David and these things that happened to him and, uh, what you allowed to happen to him to, to draw him closer to you. I pray that we'd be able to apply these things, uh, to our life and, and see how you work even in our desperation. So Lord, we, uh, thank you so much for giving us the privilege to, to, to seek you that we have the, the, the blessing of, of your word to reveal to us things about you and things about ourselves. So we pray that we would um, just make the most out of this time, that we would focus intently on you, and that you would teach us the things that you desire to teach us. In your name, amen. All right, Uh, so just pick it back up to speed. uh, Last teaching in first samuel uh, we were in first samuel chapter 20 and we saw this covenant confirmed right uh, back in first samuel chapter 18 jonathan and david they made a covenant with each other and this covenant begins to get tested as Saul is coming after David. Jonathan literally has to pick between his father and his friend. But he ultimately picks his friend. Why? Because they had this covenant that was ultimately rooted in their mutual love for God. And that's why this covenant lasted. Jonathan, he fulfilled his covenant, his promise to David. He kept his word, every word that he spoke to David. And we really elaborated on that covenant and how that covenant is really a picture of the covenant that we make with Christ. And the Bible likens the covenant that we make with Christ to a marriage covenant. Literally, he's the groom and the church is the bride. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, we're all the bride of Christ for those that accept the groom into their life. And we just really elaborated on this meaning of covenant and, and what are covenants that we can trust and, and covenants that we can't trust because He broke his covenant. Now, as we enter into 1 Samuel chapter 21... We ended in 1 Samuel chapter 20 where Jonathan fulfilled his word and he said, Hey, look, Dave, uh, if my dad's going to come after you, I'm going to shoot the arrows and I'm going to tell you basically, you better get out of town. You better flee because dad's coming after you. Saul is ready to kill you. He's not over it. He's still angry with you. So Jonathan, he warns, warns David. So David is on the move once again. Now David, as much as we love him, We all love David, right? He's a flawed man. And we're going to see David initially in his desperation. He's going to act out carnally. Okay, he's going to use deception, deception, and more deception ultimately in an effort to try to deliver himself. But we'll also see at the end of the story and through some of the psalms that he writes during uh, the events that happen in this text, ultimately he's going to depend on the Lord. And that's really the purpose of this text and the point of this text, which brings me to the title, From Desperation to Dependence. From Desperation to Dependence. We're going to see David in the midst of his desperation at first, he acts deceitfully, but ultimately, the Lord will use this desperate time in David's life to lead him to a place of dependence on God. And we see God do that in our lives so often. He uses the desperate times in our life so that we'll learn to lean on him and depend on him. Let's look at this in more detail, if you would, with me. First Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? So David, in the midst of his desperation, he's literally going to run to the tabernacle. He's going to run to the house of God. He's going to run to the high priest, which is, in other words, a representation of God. Which brings me to the first point desperation should drive us to the Lord. Desperation should drive us to the Lord. We see the first time that Saul comes after David, where did David run to? He ran to Samuel, right? So we see this wisdom of David. He's running to the right people. He's running to people that he can trust. He's running to people that have spiritual uh, maturity and that can give him guidance. But in this specific scenario, he's literally running to the house Of God. And they can get bitter at God. And they can get angry at God. And God if you're a loving God. You're a good God. Why did you allow this to happen to me? And there are so many people. That will go through rough times. And they'll allow those rough times. To drive them away from the Lord. But the point of those rough times. Is rather to teach us to lean on the Lord to drive us to the feet of David this is the purpose and why God is he David away from the Lord but rather to draw David closer to the Lord where do you run when you face desperate times they could be big things significant events in your life or or they could be little things Sometimes we can run to to carnal things when we face rough times, situations that overwhelm us, situations that we don't want to deal with. Maybe it was a loss of a loved one. Maybe it was a loss of a job, uh, a change of location, a loss of a relationship, boyfriend or girlfriend. It really could be anything and everything. The point isn't what the trial is. The point is, where is the trial driving you? And the trial can often drive us to, again, pursue carnal things, to pursue, to pursue relief, to to pursue addiction. The only thing that's going to make me feel better in this situation is a drink, is a drag, is a shot, you name it. And sometimes we can allow this carnal nature to take over and lead us to this place that we're actually looking for carnal things to deliver us. Or at the very least, relieve us. Some people, maybe it's not drugs... It could be a person, and depending on that person instead of depending on the Lord. It could be a habit, it could be a hobby, it could be TV, it could be social media, it literally could be anything, it could be shopping. I just need to buy something to make myself feel better. The point is, desperate times shouldn't lead us to carnal behavior. Desperate times should drive us to the feet of Jesus, and we see that 's exactly what 's going to happen. He talks about this all the time, speaking of david we 'll look at a few psalms as we go through this text, if you would with me psalm thirty one in psalm thirty one we see David was often in overwhelming situations, he was often in very stressful situations david he didn 't have an easy life like let 's be real. he was on the run. A majority of his life. He had very difficult circumstances. First it was Saul. Later on we'll see it's Absalom. One of his sons. Like David didn't. Though he's a king. And he has a lot of material possessions. At one point in his life. He had a very difficult life. He had a lot of situations. That caused him to this place. Or led him to this place. Of of desperation. If you look at Psalm 31. Verse 1. David knew where to go. During these times, it says in you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness, your righteousness, bow down your ear to me, deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. He recognizes in the midst of his desperation, the only stability that he can find in his life is his fortress. It's God. God is the only one that can deliver him in his desperation. God is the only one he can put his hope in. The only one that he can put his trust in. He knows if he puts his trust or hope in anything other than the Lord, that will be a hope that disappoints. That will be a hope that lets him down. If we're not putting our hope in the fortress, then we're putting our hope in something that lacks stability, which will lead us to a place of of less stability or instability in our lives. But when we put our hope in the fortress, who is our God, we can have stability. Not only stability, we can have deliverance. That's exactly what David will experience later on in this text. Now, as we've mentioned previously david is a type of christ right christ is referred to as the son of david because he would come through the lineage of david both through his father and through his mother um regardless we see this typology happening here see david was the rightful ruler right he was the rightful king of israel it just wasn't his time yet to rule Jesus is the rightful ruler of earth. He left earth, he ascended, he went to heaven, but he will come back to claim his rule, to rule and reign over the earth during the second coming. See David and we'll talk about this later. Saul is a picture of the antichrist. We'll get into it in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 22 the, the the next teaching. But we see that right now, though Saul is ruling over Israel. David is the rightful ruler. He's going to leave his kingdom, but he will come back to claim his kingdom. It's a picture of Christ. He is the rightful ruler of this earth. He left. He will come back to claim it. Now, picking it back up in 1 Samuel chapter 21. So, he sees the high priest, Ahimelech. And Ahimelech said to him, why are you alone? And no one was with you. It also says Ahimelech was afraid. It seemed odd to Ahimelech that this prominent man, David, that's so popular, literally more popular than the king, King Saul. Why is this guy alone? Like he's usually with a bunch of people. He's usually leading armies and he's come into the house of God alone. Something seems off here. So he's afraid. He's like, uh, what's actually happening? So they'll have this dialogue. Look what David says in first Samuel chapter 21, verse two. So David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. David is lying. Okay. David is lying. This isn't true. King Saul didn't send him on some secret mission. Okay. David is running from King Saul. So he lies. He uses deception. This is point number two. Desperation shouldn't lead to deception. Desperation shouldn't lead to deception. Now, David, what he's doing here is wrong. He's lying. We know lying is wrong. Okay. We don't know exactly why David is lying. It could have been for a selfish reason. It could have been, hey, he doesn't want to get caught and he doesn't want Ahimelech to tell Saul and now Saul knows where he is and yada, yada, yada. But this actually also could have been for a selfless reason. What do I mean? Well, if Ahimelech knows that David's on the run, then then basically Ahimelech is part of the conspiracy. He's protecting a fugitive. So he could have been saying this because he doesn't want Ahimelech to know, because he doesn't want Ahimelech to help him knowing that he's on the run from Saul, because he knows if Saul finds out that Ahimelech helps him and and he was aware that David was on the run, then Saul's going to have Ahimelech killed. But guess what? Saul's going to have Ahimelech killed either way. And we see this all stems from this lie that David communicates here. And this lie is going to continue to develop. He'll say several different lies. Now looking at David in this scenario and trying to empathize. I don't know what I would have done. (laughs) I don't know what any of us would have done in his shoes. We know someone's out to kill us. We don't know who we can trust. We go to one person that we think we can trust. They ask us a question. We're on the spot. The pressure's on. What do I say? And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is a lie. But the consequence of this lie is that Ahimelech and 85 other priests would be slaughtered because of David's lie. And we'll see later on in 1 Samuel chapter 22, if you would with me, verse 22, David regrets this. One priest ends up surviving. It says, I knew that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. David feels guilty, he has regret, he knows that he has some responsibility here. He didn't kill the priest, but because of his lie, he's the one that got them into the trouble that they're in. The point is, in desperate times... It's easy for us to justify doing anything and everything we can to get out of the situation. I'll do whatever I can to get myself out of this situation. I mean, come on, my life is on the line. What's a little white lie? We see it's pretty significant. People die because of this lie. And the point is, even in our desperate times, we should not lie. We should not deceive. All it does is get more people in trouble. In our deception, our lies, it will lead other people to face consequences. David isn't the one that suffers the consequences. It's the people that he cares about, this priest and his family. Now, David suffers the consequence in the sense of the remorse and regret, but he's not the one that's killed. Other people are killed. And that's so true of our sin. It doesn't just affect us. It affects the people around us, the people closest to us, the people that we care about the most. Now, in desperate times, we will do some things that we might regret, but that doesn't mean it's okay. In desperate times, we ought to still pursue righteousness, do what's right, regardless of how we think we'll be affected. David's likely thinking, well, if I don't lie, I'm going to die. But if you do lie, 85 other people are going to die. So he says, this is somewhat important, in verse 2, the last sentence. He says, I've directed my young men to such and such a place. There's no evidence to suggest that David is with anyone. Okay, and we'll talk about this a little more in a minute. But we'll see this lie continue to develop. Moving on, 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 3. Now therefore... What have you on hand? This is David speaking. Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him the holy bread for there was no bread there, but the show bread, which had been given, been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. So David obviously needed food and water to survive in the wilderness. So he comes to the priest and he asks for some provision. Now, the bread that was there is referred to as the show bread in the tabernacle and later on in the temple, they would have a table with 12 loaves of bread. And what this bread represented was God's eternal provision and fellowship with His people. Okay, This showbread, literally, the meaning is bread of faces. Bread of faces, why? Because it was bread that was meant to be eaten in the face of God, or in the presence of God. It was eating With God, having fellowship with God. Now this bread was specifically for the priests. If you look in Leviticus chapter 24, Leviticus chapter 24, verse 9. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. This is the showbread. For it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. Aaron and his sons referring to the lineage of priests that were to come. This was primarily for them. Now, you also see in verse 8 that every Sabbath they would replace the bread. Every Sabbath they would put fresh bread out. So that's what's happening here. David's like, give me the old bread. you got to put new bread out regardless. So that's what the high priest does. Ahimelech gives David the old bread so he can set hot, fresh bread out. Now, the high priest... He has some conditions. He says, hey, I'll give you this bread if you and the men that may or may not be with you uh, have kept themselves from women. This was special bread. This was holy bread. So the high priest is kind of just saying, hey, I want to make sure that you're clean at least to eat this sacred bread, this show bread, this bread of faces. So David says, hey, we've been clean for at least three days. Um who knows what's really happening. Uh, But anyways, regardless, the priest, it says in verse 6, it says that he gave him the holy bread. See what happens here? God provided for David in the midst of his desperation. Okay, And this is point 3. God provides during desperate times. God provides during desperate times. David came to the house of the Lord with a need, and God provided through the high priest with this showbread. And the truth of the matter is, God often leads us to desperate times so that we'll ultimately seek provision for Him. God wants us to seek provision for Him. And the awesome thing about it is God doesn't just leave us out to dry when we seek Him for provision, He'll provide all our needs. Okay, Listen to that word, needs. Not once, needs. It says just that in Philippians chapter 4, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, it says this. Indeed, I have all in abound, and I am full, having received from Epaphroditus The thing sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God will provide all our needs. That doesn't mean all our wants. What we think we need and what God might think we need could be two different things. The point is, though, God will ultimately provide everything that we need. He provided for David's needs. Now, for David to come to this place that he was seeking provision from the Lord, he he had to be brought to that place of desperation. He had to have a trial. He had to have a hardship. If he was still sitting in the palace, you better believe he's not going to the house of God asking for the showbread. He's got his legs kicked up. Maybe some ladies fanning him off of palm trees, feeding him grapes. You know the scene. He was living well in the But now that everything's been taken from him now he's got to seek provision in the house of the lord What's the point you may have heard me say this before But you never realize god is all you need until god is all you have and it's so true we often don't realize God is the only provision I need until God is the only thing left that I have. I found that to this to be true. Uh in, in my case, when I came to Christ, I was uh, I had nothing. I was living in a foreclosed house, uh getting kicked out, doing drugs, had burned every single bridge, had no more job, had nothing left, family wouldn't let me over for holidays anymore. I literally had nowhere else to go but this place called Calvary House, which was a ministry at Calvary Chapel. Fort Lauderdale it was literally all I had left it was like God was forced. This is all you got. You got to come to the house of God. If you want to get your life squared away, I went there and God provided not just all my needs, but more and more than I ever thought that I could ever have more than I ever thought that I could need. God provided not just a place to stay and food on the table. He provided purpose. He provided hope. He provided redemption and friendships, new friendships. He provided redemption in the relationships with my family. Now, Now, better than ever. Later on, he provided a job, he provided a wife, he provided a son, and the provision just keeps coming and coming and coming. Now, the point isn't that everybody's going to see this exact same provision in their life. The point is that when we lose everything, when we're in the midst of that desperation, We ought to look up because God is always there with open arms and open hands ready to provide for us. He wants us to seek provision in him and him alone. That's exactly what we see with David. He comes to the house of God seeking provision from God and God provides for him. But this also doesn't just speak about God. This speaks about Ahimelech. Now, ahimelech knew that this bread was specifically supposed to typically go to the priest but ahimelech he gives david the holy bread with this recognition and it shows us that ahimelech realized that human need was of greater concern than holding to tradition and this is funny because it comes up later in the new testament jesus uses this exact story to get a point across to the pharisees see the pharisees they were so caught up in man-made tradition that they got away from the word of god and they actually added to the word of god they made up their own laws that god never instituted they were actually putting a greater burden on themselves and other people than god actually intended jesus uses this same story here in first samuel chapter 21 to get this message across if you would with me in matthew chapter 12 verse 1 it says At that time jesus was jesus went through the grain fields on the sabbath and his disciples were hungry and began began to pluck heads of grain and to eat because you're not supposed to work on the sabbath okay and when the pharisees saw it they said to him look your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the sabbath because they're saying plucking the grains is work and you can't do that on the sabbath god never said that he never said you couldn't pluck grain like this now he goes on in verse three but he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who are with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priest. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless, meaning the priests work on the temple, <laughs> the priests are working on the Sabbath, so they're, they're, they're breaking the law. That's not the point. Verse six, yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The point God desires mercy over sacrifice. It's about the heart over the letter. That's what He's getting at here. Uh, adding to the law, leading to this place of legalism in this this burdensome life. No, no, no. The Lord wants us to live under love. He wants to live under us to live under grace. He wants us to live by faith. Now. When we look back at Leviticus, you don't have to, we already read it, we see that this was typically intended for the high priest, but what the Bible doesn't say is that, or sorry, for the, all the priests, the Bible doesn't say that this was only for the priests, okay? The Bible doesn't say that the showbread, only the priests could eat it. It was originally intended for the priest, but it doesn't say in there, no one else can eat the showbread. If it said that, we'd probably be talking about something different here in 1 Samuel chapter 21. It doesn't say that picking it back up. First Samuel chapter 21, verse seven. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. Now, he's an Edomite. He's not an Israelite, okay, which puts his uh, relationship with God into question right off the bat. We don't know why he's here specifically at the house of the Lord. Uh, likely, based on looking at the rest of the chapter, um, he probably, we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us, he probably had to go through some type of ceremonial ceremonial cleansing so that he could work for Saul. Okay, uh, Based on Doeg, this guy's personality and his characteristics, it doesn't appear at all that he has a sincere relationship with God. He's the one that kills all the priests. Okay, so we see he's at the house of God. He's likely there out of obligation and not out of a desire to seek the Lord. We see no evidence of a relationship with God in this guy's life. Picking it back up in verse 8. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no no other except that one here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. I want to point something out here. Back in verse 8, look at what David says. He continues to elaborate on this lie. He asked for a sword or a spear because he said he brought neither because the king's business required haste. One lie. Turned into several lies, and isn't that the case with lying? Is you don't just lie once. Typically, you lie once and you gotta lie again to cover up that lie, and on and on it goes. Lying has this tumbling effect thing. We have to keep lying to cover up the original lie, and that's exactly what David's doing. Lying, lying doesn't just become an act; it becomes a lifestyle. That's the truth, and that's what's happening, sadly but truly, in the life of David, man. When uh when I was younger, uh, before I knew the Lord, okay, grace, forgiveness, give it to me, please, mercy, all these things. Um, when I was younger, uh, I think the first time I really got in trouble, I was about 15. I had a party at my house. My parents weren't there. It was like an early release day, and we were all drinking. And there was this place that I could get alcohol from. Uh, and so I went to go get my friend alcohol from the store. And when he was pulling back into my neighborhood, he was flying, you know, just being a teenager. Uh, and we ran into a tree alcohol in the car. Um, I grabbed it, took off running through it in the woods, and ran back to my house like a mile away. Well, the cops, I don't know who told them, but they found out where I lived. They came to my house, and that was the first time I got arrested. So from that point forward, I had to like start going to like AA meetings and stuff like that, because alcohol was involved, right? And so anytime I would get in trouble, my parents were like, the solution's AA meetings, okay? They weren't following the Lord at the time. So I would go to these AA meetings, and I wasn't drinking but I was smoking weed. Okay. And and I would go to these AA meetings and I would grab the chips. Like, yeah, I've been sober for a month. I'm just smoking weed. I'm not, I'm not getting drunk. And this is what I was convinced of. I like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm sober. Like it's just weed. I'm not, I'm not drinking anywhere. So I would grab my one month and my three month and all these things. And it got to this point that it's like, what's even true and, and what's even a lie eventually down the road. My parents were like, hey, you know, got in trouble again. Hey, you should probably go to a AA meeting. So I pretended like I was gonna to go to the AA meeting. I went with my brother and we went and we got high at the beach, okay? So we come back to my parents' house uh and my parents go, How was the meeting? And so I was like, oh, it was good. The speaker, he spoke about that. I went on for about 10, 15 minutes talking about the meeting. That was actually a meeting I went to like a month ago. Uh, So I'm describing this former meeting that I went to way back. And it was almost like I believed I was at the meeting, even though I wasn't. My parents were like, oh, really? Because we stopped by and we looked in and we didn't see you there. Like, oh, wow. (laughs) The point is all these little lies just kept building up and building up and building up until my entire life was a lie. I honestly didn't even know what was true and what was a lie until I met Jesus. And then I saw, oh my gosh, like that was so wrong and this was what was true back then and this is what was the lie. The point is lying. It's not just an act. It becomes a lifestyle when we tell one we gotta continue lying to cover up the one. We dig ourselves a deeper hole than we need to, and it just causes us serious consequences. So David, he continues to develop this lie. He needs a sword because he needs to defend himself. So Ahimelech's like, hey, remember that giant you killed, Goliath? Remember you took his sword and it's here at the house of God, at the tabernacle. So David, he gets excited. He says, there's none like it. Give it to me. He he wants this sword of Goliath. And I can't imagine how big this sword is. Couldn't have been very easy to swing around. Goliath being probably nine plus feet tall. Regardless, David, he grabs the sword, but we see David again practicing carnal behavior. He's putting his hope in the sword, okay? It wasn't the sword of Goliath. Remember, David used the sword of Goliath to behead Goliath. But it wasn't the sword that gave him the victory. It was his faith in God that gave him the victory. Now David, for this brief moment in time, he's putting his hope in carnal things. I need a sword or a spear because I need to defend myself. But what he's not saying is, is I need the Lord. I need the faith I had then so that the Lord will defend me. The sword will do no good without faith. Goliath's sword in david's hand without the lord's hand on david's life. It's not going to do him any good <laughs> Goliath's sword is not going to take out saul and all his armies The only thing that's going to protect david at this point is the hand of god however There is a connection here in speaking of desperate times There is a sword that we must lean on in desperate times. And the Bible refers to this sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6. It's literally the Word of God. The the Word of God is referred to as a sword. It pierces. It divides. It gets to the heart of the matter. And when we face these desperate times, it's not the sword of Goliath that we need to lean on. It's the sword of the Word that we must lean on. Right now, David is putting his trust in the sword of Goliath. But later, at the end of this section, he's going to put his trust in the sword of God. He's literally going to put his trust in the word of God, as we'll see in 1 Samuel 22. Picking it back up, 1 Samuel 21, verse 10. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Akesh, the king of Gath. This is crazy, okay? He's literally going to stay with the Philistines. Not only is he staying with the Philistines, this is Gath. This is where Goliath is from, okay? He must be out of his mind. He's literally taking Goliath's sword to go back to Goliath's hometown, where his family lives, okay? Like, he's going to last very long here. This is the state that he's in. He's just looking for anything and everything to get himself out of this situation, now, what is David thinking? He's likely thinking, well, if uh, if King Saul is uh, my enemy and he thinks I'm his enemy, then I might as well join the enemies of King Saul. But David has been killing thousands and thousands of Philistines. Like, he's going into their hometown and he, like, killed all their husbands. You know? It, it just seems wild and there's going to be an interesting situation that comes up. Let's read about it. 1 Samuel, chapter 21, verse 11. And the servants of Akash said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. The ten thousands are Philistines that are being referred to. Isn't this the dude that like they brag about how he's killed like ten thousand of us? Isn't this this guy? But they also say, and this is interesting, Is this not David the king of the land? They recognize David's kingship before David recognizes it. Now, David probably had an idea, right? He was anointed by Samuel. He knew the kingdom was eventually his. But these people looked at him as if he was already the king. And it's interesting sometimes when there's a certain calling on our life, certain gifts that maybe God gives us. Sometimes other people notice it before we do. And sometimes other people say, wow, man, that person, that guy, that girl, they have this gift or they have this calling and we don't even fully recognize it and they see it to its fullest extent. We see the enemy of David sees David for who he is. This guy is the king of the land. This guy is the real leader of Israel even though positionally Saul was still the king. Now, when they uh, quote this song the greatest hit in Israel at the time uh, we see they obviously see David as a threat this is the guy that's killed tens of thousands of us why is he here like we know who he is did he come to destroy us is he a spy does he think we don't know who he is they're they're somewhat scared of him like what is this guy thinking coming here after he's killed all our people first Samuel chapter 21 verse 12 now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Akesh, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. David realized that he'd been found out. I don't know if David was thinking, well, maybe they won't notice me. Obviously, they notice him uh, relatively early. But we also see something interesting that's actually between the lines and written in Psalm chapter 56. David accounts this time period, and this time period when he's noticed by Akesh, we see that they actually captured David. They captured him. Let's look at it. In Psalm chapter 56, in Psalm chapter 56, look at the headline there. Prayer for relief from my tormentors to the chief musician set to the silent dove in distant hands, a miksham of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath. That's where he's at right now. He was captured by the Philistines during this setting. And that makes sense why he's scratching on the doors and stuff. He's literally captured. But the crazy thing is this is where everything changed for David. This is where he truly started completely depending on God in the midst of his captivity. Let's read some of this psalm. Psalm 56 verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God, for a man would swallow me up. Fighting all day he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day. For there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. He realized he was hopeless without God. He realized Goliath's sword isn't going to do him anything at this point. He's in jail. He's in prison. He's suffering. He knows that they want to kill him. They want to put him to death. The only place he can put his hope is in the Lord. And that's exactly what he does. He puts his hope in God. But it took David being brought to that darkest hour. And so often... We won't seek the light until we face that darkest hour. We don't, won't seek freedom until we've experienced captivity. David had to be captured. He had to be brought to this low of lows so that he would learn to look up and recognize that only Yahweh could, could deliver him from his situation. So we don't know where he got this idea. It doesn't tell us. But he starts acting like a madman. He starts acting crazy. Verse 13, we'll reread. He changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Now, he tries to prove that he's not a threat. So he acts like a crazy person. He acts like a madman. I don't know if this was spirit led or what. Uh, not completely sure, but it's gonna work. Uh, and it's funny. They talk about the saliva on the beard. Like that was like the, that was like the icing on the cake for them in that culture. If you walked around with saliva on your beard, it's like only the craziest people would walk around with saliva on their beard. That was like the ultimate disgrace. Like if you walked around with drool on your beard, like that was the grossest thing. You had to be a mad person to walk around around with saliva on your beard so they realized man this guy must be out of his mind uh, it's it, it's like killing a um, a handicapped person at this point uh, we gotta let him go so they're going to look at verse 14 then Akesh said to his servants look you see the man is insane why have you brought him to me have i need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence. Should this fellow come into my house, like you're letting him uh, near me, we need to get rid of this guy. So we see that the plan worked. But this wasn't just David's cleverness. This was Yahweh's protection. And David, he writes a psalm about this too. In Psalm 34, acting like the madman. It's crazy uh, to, to think of all these thoughts that were going through david 's mind in the midst of all this in psalm thirty four um, read the intro, a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech that 's another name for Akech uh, Abimelech like means like ruler or king, okay, same guy, same situation. he drove him away and he departed. okay verse one, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. David's not uh, given credit to his cleverness. He's not given credit to the fact that he acted like a crazy person and it worked. He's given credit to the fact that in that moment he cried out to God. He did whatever he thought he could could do. And it was ultimately, he says, God that delivered him. It was Yahweh that ultimately delivered him. And that's so true for us. When we seek God in our desperation and those moments of captivity, those moments of despair... We can count on the Lord to deliver us. It's something that He wants to do. It's something that He promises to do. It's something that He does for David. Psalm, sorry, not Psalm. 1 Samuel chapter 22. We'll get through these five verses. David, therefore, departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down... There to him. And everyone was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Adulam, this cave, we'll see David spend quite a bit of time here. It literally means refuge. This was a refuge that God in his sovereignty set up for David so that he could flee and have a place to go in hiding from Saul. Now David would write several psalms while he was in this cave. Psalm 57, Psalm 142, and other ones. He did a lot of writing here, uh, which is interesting. It was in this darkest moment that, that led David to draw near to the Lord and, and led him to this place of worship and through this worship, we see that David was ultimately delivered. And we see this pattern throughout the Bible. Good example uh, is in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, uh, you have Paul and Silas, and they cast out this demon-possessed girl that these guys were making money off of, and so the guys put Paul and Silas in jail. And in the midst of their captivity, and in the midst of their desperation, it says that they praised God, they worshipped God, and you know what happened? The jail cell doors opened up. They were free to go. And we see a Philippian jailer, Was saved that day the point is we see this pattern throughout the bible from desperation to worship to deliverance God brings us to places of desperation. So we'll lean on him and worship him so that he can deliver us But if we don't find the place of desperation Sadly, but truly we often won't find the place of worship and we won't experience the deliverance David had to experience all these things Because without them, there would be no worship, there would be no deliverance. So look what happens as David goes to escape to this cave. A bunch of people come after him. His fathers, his brothers, people who were distressed, people who were in debt, and people who were discontented. He's not the only one that's experiencing desperate times. There are other people in the nation of Israel that are also experiencing desperate times. And God is going to use David as a type of Christ to deliver his people. This is point number four. Desperate times call for a determined deliverer. Desperate times call for a determined deliverer. That's the picture that we have here of David. It's truly a picture of Christ. David isn't Christ. He isn't perfect. But he's a picture of Christ. It's interesting because these people that followed him, some 400 men, they felt more comforted by David who had nothing, who was living in a cave Compared to Saul, who had everything. Like, Saul has the palace, we'll find out that these guys are soldiers, they're warriors, but they feel more comforted by David. Why? because of his character, because of his love for God. It wasn't about the possessions. It wasn't about the palace. There was something about David that gave them comfort. They knew they were safe with David because they knew God had his hand on David's life. This is an awesome character quality about David. But I want to take a look at these types of people that followed him, people that were in distress. Why? They were in distress, and David made them feel at peace in the midst of their stress. It's a picture of the Prince of Peace. It says they were in debt. We owe a debt we cannot pay. In Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says the wages of sin is death. Our debt that we owe God is death and eternity in hell. That's a payment that none of us, I think, want to pay. But it says Jesus paid that price. In Second Corinthians 5.22 says he became sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. He paid the debt. He died. He went to hell so that we could be saved and enter into eternal life. Distressed, in debt. It also says discontented. In the Hebrew, this means bitter of soul. Okay, they're just sick of life. They're not happy with life. They're over life the way that it is. They want something different. They'd rather leave the comfort of their homes just to be with David. And the truth is, we often won't follow the son of David until we find out that this life, is, there's, there's discontentment. There's no true fulfillment. There's no true satisfaction that this world has to offer. The only contentment that we can ever hope for is contentment in our relationship with Christ. That's where true contentment is found. Paul, he learned this the hard way. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. In Philippians 4, verse 11, it says that Paul learned contentment, meaning at one point he didn't have it, <laughs> and at another point later on he learned it, he developed it. How? He lost everything. He, he lost everything. His position, his prominence, his fame, possessions, you name it, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, he lost it. He learned to find contentment in Christ. He says, I've learned to find contentment when I'm full, when I'm hungry, when I have little, when I have much. Why? Because my circumstances don't dictate my contentment. My relationship with Jesus dictates my contentment. My relationship with Christ is the only thing that's stable, the only place that I can find sincere contentment. And that's why the Lord asks us to forsake all to follow Him. All these things in the world that we pursue, those things aren't bad in and of themselves, depending on what they are. But He says, I want you to leave these things behind and pursue me. Because you're looking for purpose, you're looking for love, you're looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. You look for this stuff in me. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added onto you. I'll give you the contentment that you've always been longing for, plus more. These were the type of people that were following David. You look at this group of people and it's obviously a picture of us It's a picture of us people that are distressed people that are looking for peace and what happens God sends the prince of peace to relieve us from our stress Our distress and give us that replace that distress with peace. We had a debt We couldn't pay and what did god do? He sent jesus christ to pay the debt for us We were discontent with life And he sent Jesus to give us abundant life. We're a picture of these outcasts that are following David. So we see there are 400 of these men in verse 2 that follow David. And the cool thing is, they didn't come to David when he was ruling over the kingdom. They came to David when he was living in a cave. (laughs) When David was at his lowest point, we see the loyalty of these men. And we'll see, uh, in many scriptures in the Bible, uh, the, the authors of these scriptures will talk about the character qualities of these men. One being in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 8, if you want to write it down. 1 Chronicles 12, 8. We see these men, I'll paraphrase, they were warriors. They were sold out for God. They were sold out for David. Like these weren't just like, you know, like, uh, just, just beggars and, and poor people that, that needed hope. Like these guys had something, uh, serious to bring to the table and help David fight the battle that he needed to fight. So these outcasts, these specific, many of these men, were very great warriors, men of valor they're referred to as. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 3. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. So David wanted to protect his family mainly, but the other people as well. So he takes them to Moab. Why? Well, we see back in Ruth that Ruth was a Moabite, okay? So his great-grandmother was a Moabite. So he knows, okay, we got a lineage here. The Moabites will likely take care of my family because Ruth was a Moabite. So he sends his family there. Seems like everything works out. But look what else David does here. You know, he has a change of heart. He's seeking God. He's waiting for the word, he says in Psalm 34. He says again, verse three, please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. As he was waiting to hear from the Lord, he wasn't just sitting idle. Okay, he he wasn't doing nothing. Now, this is important. Hear me out. Being still and knowing that he is God, it doesn't always, sometimes it can, it doesn't always mean do nothing, okay? (laughs) See, David, he was waiting to hear from the Lord, but he was still trying to put things in order. Sometimes we can fall into these situations where we don't know the next step to take, the next direction to go, as David did. He didn't know where to go. He was waiting for the Lord, but he didn't sit there and do nothing. He sought God and he tried to make some things happen. Another great example is in Acts uh, chapter 1. So Jesus, he just ascended to heaven and he says, Wait in Jerusalem, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Okay, I want you to wait here until I send the Holy Spirit. But the disciples, they didn't just wait there and do nothing. Look what they do. In Acts chapter 1 verse 14, In Acts chapter 1 verse 14, It says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with women and uh, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Meaning, they still engaged in spiritual things while they waited for the Lord to fulfill his promise. What's the point? Hey, there are certain times and certain seasons where God says, Hey, I want you to be still and I literally, I don't want you to do like anything. I don't want you to work. I want you to heal. I want you to recover. I want you to do this and that. I really don't want you to do much. But waiting on the Lord doesn't always mean like be still in the literal sense, sense like we do nothing. The point is, I've ran into way too many believers that I love so much that use the be still and know that I am God to sit there and be complacent in their spiritual walk and say, I don't know what step to take next, so I'm not going to take a step. Be careful there. Don't justify waiting for the Lord. Don't justify complacency and use it for uh, I'm waiting for God. In the midst of us waiting for the Lord, I'd encourage you unless the Lord tells you personally other words. Be spiritual. Engage in spiritual things. Get busy about doing spiritual stuff. That's what the apostles do. They, they, they did. They still sought God. They still worshiped God. They still prayed. They still served. They still did all these things while they waited for the Lord to fulfill His promise and send them the Holy Spirit. See, David, he says, I'm waiting for God to give me direction, but He's still taking care of His family. He's still setting them up with the Moabites. He's still taking care of the 400 men that are following him we'll close it out here in verse 5 now the prophet of gad said to david do not stay in the stronghold depart and go to the land of judah so david departed and went into the forest of hereth so david waited on the word from god and prophet the prophet gad came to him and delivered The word of God. But David didn't just wait. He diligently waited for God. He was still engaging in things, making things happen as he waited for a word from the Lord. It's the fifth and final point. In desperate times, wait on the word. In desperate times, wait on the word. When we don't know what to do during in trial, yes, engage in spiritual things. Still do the things that you know to do. Serve, pray. Worship, all these, read, all this stuff. But as we're waiting on a word and we don't know what to do in a trial, do just that. Wait for God to give us that next direction. Don't justify it and say, I can be spiritually complacent, but wait till you hear from the Lord. Because the other side of that is, I'm just going to make a rash, emotionally led decision and I'm going to get myself in even more trouble. Because this is the lie. When my circumstances are overwhelming, I got to make a really quick decision. That's not always true. That's not always true. Sometimes we just got to wait and say, hey, 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 okay, can I, can I not make this decision right now? And what would the Lord have me do? The pressure of the world will always tell you, you need to make a decision right now. That isn't always the case. Sometimes we just got to wait for the Lord to make the decision for us. The cool thing about it is we can always count on the Lord to give us a word eventually. I say eventually, not always right when you want it, but eventually he will fulfill his promise. He will give us that word in the midst of our trial. And he says, look at the word that he gives him. Do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go to the land of Judah. God's direction, leave the stronghold. In other words, leave your comfort zone and go back to the dangerous place. That's what he says. I want you to leave the place where you're comfortable and I want you to go back to where you're vulnerable. Not the direction I think David was looking for. I'm comfortable in the cave. Like we're good here. I'm writing my Psalms. We're good. Worship's good. We got the guys. Like we're hanging out. We're having fellowship. Everything's good. No, it's not. You're comfortable, but you're not where God wants you to be. Get out of your comfort zone. Go back to where it's dangerous. This is often where the Spirit of God will call us. Get out of your comfort zone. Go to the place where you don't want to go. David talks about this feeling so many times during the Psalms, but I think he expresses it so well in Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, this is where we'll end, verse 7. He says deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfall waterfalls meaning god's calling me to a deep place look what he says all your waves and billows have gone over me meaning i feel like i'm drowning okay i'm vulnerable i'm in that deep place what does that mean i'm not very stressed out in ankle deep water Who is, right? I can stand, and even if you can't swim, you're pretty comfortable in ankle-deep water. But imagine being out in the middle of the ocean with no boats in sight, and you're in the middle of a storm. All the waves and billows are coming over your head. How do you feel then? Vulnerable, right? That's exactly how God wants us to feel. There's not a boat in sight. I don't have my own life raft. All I can do is look for the Lord. I'm completely vulnerable before God. I'm completely dependent upon God. God often will call us out of that ankle deep water and say, hey, go get yourself wet. Go put yourself out where it's dangerous. Why? Because I don't want you to lean where you're comfortable. You're not leaning on me here in the ankle deep water. Get out in the middle of the ocean where you got nothing else you can open other than me. This is that feeling that David's describing here. All your waves and billows have come over me. I'm overwhelmed. I'm feeling like I'm drowning and you're the only one that can save me. We don't typically lean on the Lord in that ankle deep water. So he says, leave your stronghold, get out of your comfort zone, go to the place that's dangerous, go to the place that's uncomfortable so that you really can learn what it means to depend on me. But that's not just a challenge, it's a promise. When you get to that place and depend on me in that desperate time, I will show up, I will deliver you. He doesn't want David just to get vulnerable so he can say, ha ha, look how weak you are. No, he wants David to get vulnerable so he can say, look how strong I am. Look how faithful I am. I will take care of you even when you are in over your head. See, this was the whole point and it will continue to be the point. God brought David to this place of desperation only to lead him to a place of worship so that he could ultimately deliver him. And that's what God does with us so often. I don't think there's a person in this room that goes, yay, trials, yay, hardships. I love feeling desperate and vulnerable. Okay. I will never say that. I don't like the feeling, but we know God uses the feeling. He uses the circumstances. He uses the situations. He says, Hey, If you got the right focus in the midst of your desperation, if you fix your eyes on me, I will prove myself faithful and faithful time and time again. I'm using these desperate times to teach you dependence. Because if you're depending on anything other than me, then you're selling yourself short. You're gonna fall. But if you depend on me, I'm the only one that can deliver you. There's salvation and no other name Jesus Christ. He promises that when we depend on him in our time of desperation, he will come through and deliver us time and time again. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your faithfulness, God. I don't think any of us... (laughs) would want to be where David was, and many of us can probably relate to some of the things that that David experienced um, in one way or another. Lord, but we know that, that your heart uh, is that uh, in the midst of our desperation, that we would lean on you, that we would depend on you. God, and I pray that that would be the case as we face trials. You promised that we're going to face trials. That shouldn't, shouldn't shock us. Sometimes it does, but it shouldn't as we face different hardships and different trials in our life, Lord, that we would always look up, that we would always look to you, that we would choose to worship you with the confident expectation that you are going to deliver us. Lord, you are faithful to fulfill your word. You are faithful to save. You're faithful to, to, to follow through and come through in our time of need. God, so I pray that our desperate, desperate times wouldn't lead us away from you. They would draw us closer to you and we would see how, how powerful of a deliverer you actually are. In Jesus' name, amen.